Thank you for that, Mike. And uh, thank you all for, for coming. Uh, like Pastor Rob said, it's much more encouraging preaching to people who I love and know, I know who love me rather than into empty chairs. <clears throat> Several years ago, this was years before I had even thought of ever joining this church, I was sent to the ER for some serious back pain I had been having. And I get to the emergency room, and they do all the tests, all the MRI scans. And after about an hour of being there, the doctor comes, and it's exactly how you see it on TV, where a doctor has bad news, and he just looks depressed. And he comes, and he looks at me, and he says, Luke, I have bad news and then worse news. Which, which one do you want first? And so I tell him, well, give me the bad news first. And he says, well, the bad news is that you have a case of super pneumonia on your right lung, and the infection is so bad that no amount of antibiotics is going to help it, and you're almost going to guarantee need surgery for that lung. And so in my head, I'm thinking, that's pretty bad. I don't even want to hear the, the worst news. And I ask him what, what the other news is, and he tells me, you may have cancer. And so for that entire week, I spent just lying in, in this hospital bed, going through all these biopsies, all these tests. And the, the most agonizing part of that whole week was not the fact that I had 50 cc's of fluid in my lung. It was not the fact that no matter how much I tried to bait the nurses into giving me some information, um, I couldn't figure out if I actually had cancer or not. And it wasn't even the fact of how much medical bills I realized I was racking up through this whole week. The, the most agonizing part was I, for the life of me, could not think of a single thing I did to serve God as I laid there. And I realized I might have to talk, I might have to give an account to him pretty soon. I could not think of a single person I ever evangelized. I could not think of a single uh, way I ministered to one of God's people. I had barely just been part of a church at this point. And the passage that kept coming to my mind that entire week as I laid there contemplating death was Isaiah 38. The passage where Hezekiah is on his deathbed and he's pleading with God just to give him a little, just, just to show mercy. And then our great, God's graciousness, he gives him 15 extra years. And when, when I was in bed that week, I had just been pleading with God all day, every day, just to give me a little bit more time so that I can give a good account to him. And so later that week, Pastor Rob, and as well as one of my other elders from my last church came and prayed over me. And within a day or two, my lung had healed, my medical bills had all disappeared. Um, it was like I had a clean slate. And ever since that whole experience, my prayer on a daily basis has been for God not to kill me until I can give a good account for my life. So that's my question for all of us here today is, if God chose to give you cancer and chose to put you in that bed, what kind of account would you give him? You know, I, I, we, we go to one of the most solid churches in probably America where God tells us that the more you are given, the more you are going to have to give an account for what, God, what resources you have been uh, blessed with. We, we come here every week with solid doctrine, solid preaching, <laughs> There's a high account we all have to give. 
So my goal with this sermon is to wake us all up to just how important the reality is of what we're stewarding as God's people. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 1 through 5. In this passage, we see Paul's three statements concerning the judgment of the minister. Paul's three statements concerning the judgment of the minister. 1 Corinthians chapter 4. This is how one should regard us, as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. But with me, it's a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I don't even judge myself, for I'm not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, don't pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. For the past several weeks, we have been in this letter of 1 Corinthians. And up to this point, Paul had been overemphasizing this contrast between worldly and godly wisdom. And what he seeks to address is the fact that these Corinthians are a people who are so infatuated, not with scripture, not with doctrine, but with the status of man. They're infatuated with the eloquence offered in worldly philosophies. They are obsessed with just what the world would deem as, as wisdom. And Paul is trying to remedy that. In fact, it's gotten so bad that the Corinthians have taken the apostles themselves, godly men, and placed them on pedestals, where now they're bragging about who baptized who, who is a disciple of who, and, and they are trying to divide Christ, essentially, by doing this. And as we were in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, Paul started off by emphasizing the unity among the elders, among the the apostles. And and he makes the point that, as I said previously, when you try over-exalting a certain elder over another, you're trying to divide Christ. They they all work together in the motives and the end goal, and so much so that they're they're even God's fellow workers. They're united not just with each other, but with God himself. And after that, in verses 10 through 17, Paul then switches to the focus on the judgment the minister would give. He's gonna, they're going to have to give account for, did they rely on solid doctrine? Did they rely on the precious stone, the gold, the silver, for the work that they built on the foundation of Christ? Or were they relying on wood, hay, and straw? Were they relying on philosophies, on the wisdom that man tries to offer us? And then to conclude that chapter, Paul ends with making a beeline straight for the gut of the vanity offered in man's wisdom. About how this is a wisdom that is vanity, is futile, and how if you want to be truly wise, you have to forsake all that and be considered a fool. And that brings us to today's text. Paul's first statement concerning the minister's judgment is that he's required to be faithful. He is required to be faithful. This is, this is seen in verses 1 through 2. And he starts off in verse, look at verse 1 with me. He starts off with explaining what the Corinthians should view the leaders as. This is how one should regard us, 
as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. So the us he is referring to here, this is Paul and Cephas and Apollos. These are the people who specifically have developed fan clubs around them, essentially. And Paul is saying that for all these people, this is how you should regard us. And he starts off with saying, regard us as servants, servants of God. And, and notice how in verse 9 in chapter 3, he regards himself and the other apostles as God's fellow workers. And the reason this is, is because in that section, the emphasis Paul is making is the unity of the elders between each other and God. So they're over, he's overemphasizing the fact that they are co-workers, co-laborers with God himself. But now that the emphasis has shifted in these five verses, to the status that, that the apostle has in relation to God. The fact that he's a lowly servant just doing his duties before his master. And he continues on in this verse to say, not only considers as servants, not only considers as just the weak, lowly, empty vessels that God is using, but considers as stewards. So what's a, what's a steward? A steward is someone whose master has entrusted them with all their property, with all their possessions. This is someone who, while the, the, the master is gone, they are essentially running as the boss. The, the parable that Jesus t- tells about the, the wicked servant, the, the wicked uh, steward, whose boss was about to fire him and to, to kind of get his house in order, calls all the clients and he starts cutting all their debts in half to win them over as friends. That, that's what a steward was. That's an example of a bad steward, but that, that's what a steward was. When, when Joseph was brought into Potiphar's house, he was entrusted to, to oversee all of his slaves, all of his possessions, everything in the entire house except for Potiphar's wife. Joseph was functioning as a steward. Turn with me to Luke, the Gospel of Luke, chapter 12. Luke chapter 12, and we're going to look at verses 35 through 38 to begin with. And as we look at this, we're going to see the different types of stewards that we might fall into the category under. Luke chapter 12. Verse 35. Stay dressed for action. And keep your lamps burning. And be like men who are waiting for their master to come home from the wedding feast. So they may open the door for him at once when he comes and knocks. Blessed are those servants whom the master finds awake when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will dress himself for service and have them recline at the table. And he will come and serve them. The Lord, And then on to verse 42. And the Lord said, Who then is the faithful servant? the faithful and wise manager whom his master will set over his household to give, to give them their portion of food at the proper time. Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. So, so far, right there in that section of the text, we see an example of the faithful servant. This is a, a servant who isn't just doing his duties for the sake of eye service. This is someone who, even when he doesn't know when his master is gone, even though his master has probably been gone for years, he, he doesn't clock out. He stays on the clock. He's always doing his duty. 
to the point where when his master comes home, he's found just doing his job. He's found being faithful. But let's continue on. Let's look at verse 45. But if that servant says to himself, my master is delayed in coming and begins to beat the male and female servants and to eat and drink and get drunk, the master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him and at an hour he does not yet know. And he will cut him to pieces and put him with the unfaithful. And that servant who knew his master's will but did not get ready or act according to his will will receive a severe beating. So there we have a picture of the unfaithful servant. This is a picture of someone who he, he knows what his master wanted, but he became presumptuous. He began thinking, my master's been gone for so long. Why would he come home today of all days? Let me take a vacation. Let me, let me be my own master for today. This is someone who cares more about serving himself rather than his master. That's the picture of the unfaithful servant. But as we look at the last category in verse 48, look at verse 48 with me. But the one who did not know and did what received a beating will receive a light beating. There is a picture here of someone who is unfaithful, but it's out of ignorance. A picture of someone who just out of laziness and apathy never desired to know his master's will in the first place. Which one of these servants are you? Are you the the servant who is constantly trying to learn God's will, trying to conform your life to Christ, constantly in Scripture to know what God wants for you, what what he wants you to do? Or are you the unfaithful servant, someone who comes to church, and then the second you get home, it's like a light switch hits, where you go back to your life of debauchery? Or maybe you're the, the last category, someone who, just out of apathy, never really reads Scripture, never really loans God's will in the first place, and doesn't do it just out of ignorance. And in this chapter, 1 Corinthians, Paul is applying the the idea of a steward to him and the apostles. He's applying it to the pastor. But we need to remember that we are all stewards. Everything Paul is saying here in this letter is applicable to all of us in this room. 1 Peter 4.10 says, As each has received a gift... Use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's very grace. So in other words, every one of us here has been blessed with a certain amount of knowledge, a certain amount of giftings, a certain amount of resources, and we have to steward that. Turn back to 1 Corinthians. As we continue on in verse 1, we see of what we are to steward over specifically at the end of verse 1. This is how one should regard us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. So the mysteries of God, this is the picture that when you look at the Old Testament, there are all these enigmas, all these mysteries, and it's not to the New Testament that, that we have been given revelation to the answers to these mysteries. Uh, the, the word used here is mysterion, and we see this a lot of times in Colossians. And specifically, the way Paul uses it in that letter is to explain the mystery of how the Gentiles would become a part of Israel. But the the idea of secrecy and mystery, this is applied to other doctrines as well. This is applied to God's kingdom. This is applied to the crucifixion, the resurrection, 
um, even to just the nature of the Antichrist, as we see in 2 Thessalonians. But notice here that Paul is, he doesn't say that they're stewards of the mystery of God. He uses the plural. He says the mysteries. So, so in other words, this is all-encompassing. The thing that we are stewarding is all the revelation that God has given us. Revelation that for thousands of years, Christians never had the honor or blessing to know the answer to. But now we have more revelation than any of them ever had. And oftentimes we forget the weightiness of this. We we become numb to how significant and amazing these doctrines are. Charles Spurgeon gives a a very good picture. The way he explained it is imagine you're a servant and your king has given you a letter. It has his insignia, his, his stamp of approval, everything. He gives it to you. And he tells you, I have men now in battle, and I'm, I need you to deliver this letter. I need you to, to run it to him as fast as you can, and I need you to articulate and proclaim this message to a T. Exactly how I intended it to be conveyed, that's how you need to do it. If you're that servant, you're not going to be lazy. You're not going to be apathetic. You're going to be running as fast as you can to the king's people. You're going to be doing everything in your power to protect that letter from the rain, from the heat, from the snow. You're going to be constantly reading it and memorizing it and meditating it so that, so that when you get the opportunity to proclaim it, you're not rep- misrepresenting the king. That's exactly how we need to approach Scripture. And as we look at verse 2, we see the requirement that we all have. The steward must be faithful. Look at verse 2. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. Let me, let me give you a couple of definitions that I came across on the internet of faithful. Here's the first one. Steadfast in allegiance or affection. This is what's required for the Christian. We are required to be steadfast and consistent in our allegiance and affection to what Scripture says. Second definition, reliable, trusted, and believed. The Christian has to be someone who is reliable. He has to be someone who is, dependent, who is not only dependent on Christ, but that you can trust him to, to follow through with what God says. And the last definition is strict and thorough in the performance of duty. This is someone who they are not going to go off script. They are not going to be prideful and arrogant and think that they can do things their own way. They are going to do things exactly how God has commanded to. And notice here that the thing that's required of the steward is not thousands of conversions. It's not having 10 people come up for an altar call after every sermon. The thing that's required of the steward is faithfulness. You know, this, this is one issue that a lot of people have when they, when, when they get the idea of going into the ministry, is they think that the end goal is to be the next Billy Graham. The end goal is to get all these conversions and all these amens. But what if God is requiring you to be a Jeremiah? What if faithfulness for you and your ministry doesn't look like seeing conversions? If it doesn't look like seeing your kids come to Christ? What if your faithfulness for you looks like you just faithfully proclaiming God's word and people getting angry at you for the rest of your life? Let me give you a couple of examples of what faithfulness does not look like. 
This is a quote from Richard Wu. For those of you who don't know, he's a false teacher. He, he teaches universalism, the idea that everyone goes to heaven and you don't need Christ. He's also the one who Christianized the Enneagram, by the way. This is what he says in regards to how we are to be faithful with our understanding scripture. <clears throat> you deserve to know my science for interpreting sacred texts. Even more than telling us exactly what to see in scriptures, Jesus taught us how to see, what to emphasize, but also what could be de-emphasized or even ignored. Jesus is himself our hermeneutic, and he was in no way a fundamentalist or a literalist. Jesus consistently ignored or even denied exclusionary, punitive, and triumphalist texts in his own Jewish Bible in favor of texts that emphasize inclusion, mercy, and justice for the oppressed. When Christians state that every line in the Bible is of equal importance and inspiration, they are being very unlike Jesus. So in other words, his definition of being faithful to the text is whenever you see something that speaks of sin, just take a black marker and mark it out. Just ignore it. Let me give you one more quote. This is from Joel Osteen. When asked the question of, do you think you're cheating people out of not preaching the repentance and hell part of the gospel? You know, it's not hell, fire, and brimstone, but I say most people are being down enough by life. They already feel guilty enough. They're not doing what they should, like raising the kids, but we can all find reasons. So I want them to come to our church and be lifted up and be told, you know what? I may not be perfect, but I'm moving forward. I'm doing better. Faithfulness for him is not proclaiming God's word. It is making people feel better about themselves and their sin. For the pastor to be a faithful steward, it is required that he be diligent and accurate with his handling of the text. I mean, this is what Paul tells Timothy in 2 Timothy 2.15. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of God. There is no room for the pastor or the elder or whoever is handling scripture to take the shortcut or to cut corners. For those of you who don't know, I, I am a technician at an eye clinic, and one of my jobs is when a patient comes in, uh, I take their medical history, I, I document all their medications, and I get their complaints about what's going on with their vision. And I put it in a summary form and send it to Dr. Baker so that he can look for it and know what, to, what kind of things to look out for when he sees the patient. Three months ago, we had a patient who came in complaining of headaches. Now, here's the thing is when you work up 60 to 70 patients a day and hear the same complaint of headaches, you become kind of numb to it. You don't really take it as seriously as you should. But we documented it, and we sent her to Dr. Baker. And just to err on the side of caution, he sent her to get an MRI scan. We get a call two hours later, finding out that she had a softball-sized brain tumor that was causing this headache. And Dr. Baker, because he did not cut corners or take the shortcut, they were able to save her life and get it out in time. When you are dealing with the souls of men, it's no different. You can't take the shortcut for that either. And it's not enough just for the pastor not to cut corners. He has to stand on all scripture. And not just the pastor, all of us. We have to stand firm on all scriptures, not just the ones that are convenient. 
We have to preach all truths. When, when the pastor has a text before him on that Sunday morning, he does not have the liberty to only preach the parts that he knows people won't get upset about. He has to preach all the truth that God has commanded him to give his people for that day. And it's not just enough for a pastor or for any of us to intellectually just affirm certain doctrines. You can quote the 1689 Catechism to a T and that not be enough. You have to be willing to die and suffer for those doctrines. Paul Washer, a while back, he made a point that I think hit the nail on the head. That the biggest issue you see with today's seminaries is that the only thing they're doing is spitting out really smart people. They're not spitting out faithful men. They're just spitting out really small people. And, and here's my caution for everyone here. If you want to be faithful, you have to make sure you don't compromise in the slightest. So often you will see Christians who are the top theologians, and then you look at them 10 years later, and now they're rejecting the atonement. Now they're rejecting Christ. Now they're, they're, they're rejecting the most fundamental doctrines you can imagine. And I warn you that that doesn't come overnight. The thing that leads up to that is you making small compromises over time. Maybe you're here and you don't affirm anything that the LGBT teaches, but maybe you're at a point where you compromise to using their own pronouns. Where you say in your heart, well, in my heart, I don't believe it. I still believe what Scripture says, but I'm just going to say it with my mouth. If that's you, you compromised. And if you make that a pattern, it's only a matter of time before you start compromising bigger truths. And maybe some of you here are saying, Luke, all the other people at Bible Church or Cabot may, may, may compromise, they may betray, but I never will. Sound familiar? Peter? There's a difference between saying I'm willing to die for a doctrine versus saying I'm willing to suffer for it. Because there's a sense of peace that's offered in the idea of dying for something. Because you suffer for a little bit, but then you have that moment, definitive moment of peace. But when you suffer, what if, what if to be a good steward and to faithfully stand on Scripture, you have to go the whole rest of your life, your name <coughs> being dragged in the mud, your whole rest of life being called a white supremacist, a racist, a fundamentalist? There was a bill that was this close to being passed last, last year in Indiana, of all places, called the Ordinance 3121. And when you actually start defining the words and get down to what the bill was actually saying, here's what the bill was saying. It if, doesn't matter if you're a pastor, a teacher, a licensed or unlicensed therapist, or just a faithful lay person in your church. If you have someone ever come up to you and say, I don't, I don't want to struggle with homosexuality. I want to know what Scripture says about it. If you say... Anything that goes against homosexuality, you would be fined $1,000 for every violation. There might be many of us here who would be willing to be, who be fined one time, two times. But what happens when you're fined for the 10th time? Are you still going to be faithful at that point? So we, we talked about how the minister is required to be faithful Paul's second statement concerning the minister's judgment 
is that the man's judgment is meaningless. Man's judgment doesn't mean anything. We see this in verses 3 through 4. And in verse 3, it starts off with Paul saying what he, what he thinks of man's opinion. Look at verse 3 with me. But with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human coat. In fact, I don't even judge myself. And what he's referring to here by judgment is examination, scrutiny, interrogation, specifically over his faithfulness of his stewardship. That's what's being examined here. If the Corinthians were here today and they had their Corinthian sermon evaluation form, the last thing on that form would be, uh, did, did Luke use the Greek properly? Was the application of the sermon relevant to the text? What, did, did, he, did he restate all the main points of what, what the word said? That would not be what the Corinthians would judge on. They would be judging on, did I have a smoke machine at the right time? Did I dim the, the lights at the climatic emotional point of the sermon? Did my suit meet everyone's expectation? Did I quote the Athenian philosophers that everyone loves? That, that's their criteria. And that's one reason Paul doesn't care about what they think. is because he, he already made it clear, I can't even talk to you as spiritual people. I have to talk to you as infants in Christ. You have no spiritual judgment. In fact, consider this. When you read 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians, who is the most judged and criticized person in this church? It's not Brother Sally who is suing the deacon. It's not Sister uh, Mary who has got drunk on communion for the fifth time. And it's not even the person sleeping with his own mother-in-law. It's Paul. He's the one who's under the most scrutiny in this church. They have no spiritual discernment at all. But Paul continues on by saying, not only do I not care what you think, I don't care what any human court thinks even the ones with the wisest of judges. The word he uses here for human quote is hemeritas anthropos, which just means human day. And the reason he's using this word is because all throughout the last chapter, he's been talking about the day of Christ and how that would be the true day of judgment. And now he's contrasting that with the human day. Where it's not going to be a true, the true judgment, it's just man giving their opinion. And the reason that is, is because man's opinion is fallible. They can't see the things that Christ sees. There was a clip I came across a while back, which some of you may have seen, where there's a pastor who's before his congregation, and he's seemingly sorrowful, he's seemingly repentant, and as he's talking to his congregation, he tells them, I have been unfaithful. I have committed sexual morality, and I think the best thing is for me to step down. And so as he's going on, kind of alluding to this vague sexual morality, you hear someone from the back of the church yell, we forgive you. Stay. We love you. Stay our pastor. And before you know it, the entire church is applauding this man. And then you see a husband and wife run up the stage, begging everyone to stop. The sexual morality he was referring to was the fact that he forced himself on this woman for 10 years as a kid. You may have a ministry or work that gets all the praise in the world, but that doesn't mean anything. 
You may even have a ministry where you see conversions and results and people being helped, but the reality is God may see it completely different. I know so many people who have been converted under bad sermons. That doesn't justify bad preaching. And Paul finishes this by saying, not only do I not care about what the Corinthians think, not only do I not care about what any human thinks, I don't even care what I think. Me, a divine apostle who knows scripture like the back of his hand, who has written most of the New Testament, not even I care about my own judgment. And one reason we see in verse 4 is that the main reason for not judging himself is that um, he, he doesn't see anything wrong. He, he, he doesn't realize that, that there's any sin in his life. For I am not aware of anything against myself. And when he's saying this, he's not claiming sinless perfection. He's, he's saying, I don't see any area in my ministry where I've been unfaithful. But, but listen to what he continues on in verse 4. Look at verse 4 with me. For I am not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. We have an inspired apostle who's saying, I don't see any sin in my life, any grounds for accusation, but despite all that, I still am not fully sure that I, I, I don't, there might be sin in my life. This is a humble introspection that we all should have, where it's entirely possible for us to blindside ourselves to our own sin in our lives. This is exactly why David prays in Psalm 139, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts, and see if there be any grievous way in me, and lead me in way everlasting. David is saying, God, I don't trust my own discernment or my own judgment. You search my heart. And this should be a prayer for all of us to constantly have God search our hearts for besetting sins. One prayer that, that Spurgeon often prayed was, God, show me enough of my sin to drive me to Christ, but not enough for me to dr- be driven to despair. That's how we should pray. So we've, we talked about how the minister is required to be faithful, and we've also talked about how the man's judgment is meaningless. Paul's third statement concerning the minister's judgment is that God will be the one to judge. We see this in verse 4 and 5. <clears throat> and we see this at the end of verse 4 when he, when he says, For I am not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. And specifically, he's referring to Christ. Christ will be the one to judge him. Look back at chapter 3, verse 13 with me. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 13. Each one's work will become manifest, for the day will disclose it, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. On that last day, Christ is going to be judging the work of every Christian. He's going to be looking at, and it's going to be a perfect judgment. He's going to be looking at every degree of bad motive, every degree of philosophy that we've incorporated. And if you had not built your work, your life on scripture, that which is precious stone, gold, and silver, your work is going to burn. 
And that's the judgment Paul is referring to here. And his conclusion, which we see in verse 5, is that man should not play the role of God. Look at verse 5. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. And the point of the therefore in verse 5 is Paul is saying, now that I've demonstrated what we have to give an account for, which is our faithfulness, and the fact that man cannot judge these things and that God's the one who judge, therefore you don't try to judge. Don't try to play Christ. But there's a clarification to be made here. Is Paul saying that Christians are never to judge? That's not the case, because in the very next chapter, what is he rebuking the Corinthians over? Not using common sense and judging the man sleeping with his mother-in-law. The, you know, one, one effect that the post-mar movement has had in the church is we, we've taken this to an extreme where we say, we are not to judge anyone, let's just do that, let's just hand that over to God. And often the proof text for that is Matthew 7. Let's turn to Matthew 7 for a moment and figure out how to reconcile these two things. Matthew 7, verse 1. Judge not that you not be judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged, and with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that's in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your own eye, when there's a log in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Do not give dogs what is holy, and do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them under a foot and turn to attack you. Jesus' point here is not to not judge people. His point is don't judge hypocritically. And the reason we know that is because verse 6, you're expected to judge the fruits of people to figure out who the dogs and swine are. So the point Paul is making in 1 Corinthians is not to never judge fruits. The point he's making is there are some parts like motives or or degrees of faithfulness that you can't judge, especially when that person hasn't given you any reason to doubt the ministry or their faithfulness. For that, leave that to Christ to judge. That's where the love and hopes and believes all things comes in that we see in chapter 13. And as we look at verse 5, we see that Christ's judgment will be thorough. It will be accurate. Every detail will be judged. And we see this when he says, he will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness. All the things that man can't see, the degree of faithfulness, the amount of wood, hay, and straw, the the motives of the person, the, the, the purposes of the heart, those is what Christ will judge. And there'll be many of us who, who, rather than having a work and life of precious stone, gold, and silver, it's going to be layers. It's going to be layers of precious stone mixed with hay, mixed with stubble, mixed with straw. And even that's going to be burned. We need to refine our work and our life and our doctrine to be as scriptural as possible. Because God's going to judge to the very last straw of hay. And maybe you're here and you're not a believer. For the believer, 
we are giving an account and judgment for our stewardship. For the unbeliever, it'll be for your sins. This exact same judgment is going to be for you as well. Where all the things that you've hidden in the dark, all the motives, all the wicked thoughts, all the moments of, of lust, anger, pride, self-deceit, Christ on that last day is going to take a spotlight and shine it right on it for everyone to see. Where not even you can deceive yourself at that point. But if you repent and turn to Christ and believe in this perfect life that he lived on your behalf and the perfect death that he suffered where he paid for every last one of those sins for you, that sacrifice can be applied to you. Where the same God who would judge you and condemn you to hell would be the same God that we will see later on will praise the good steward. Which brings us to the, 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 the final aspect of this is that we see God's reward for faithful stewardship. We see this in verse 5. <clears throat> Look at the end of verse 5 with me. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. The each one here is referring to each one who has been faithful in their stewardship of the word. And this word uh, uh, commendation could be translated as praise. And, and just, just think about this. Not only, fellow Christian, have you been given Paul and Apollos and Cephas in the world, not only have you been given life and death, the present and the future, but you have an opportunity to receive praise on top of all those other blessings. And the thing about praise is the, the amount of worth that we place on it, the amount of impact it has on us, is always proportional to how much we admire and respect the person giving it. The king of kings himself would be the one to do this. And see, there's going to be a day where God looks at you and says, on this particular day, I put you through great suffering. And the reason I did that was so that you could steward my word well. Did you steward it? And if you were faithful in the midst of that suffering, God's going to say, well done. Well done, good and faithful servant. And that's, and that's our goal. That's our goal in the Christian life is to get to that point. And as we saw in the last chapter, it doesn't matter if you water or plant or what role you have in God's kingdom. God's the one who gives the growth. Meaning, God, even though God's the one doing all the work, he still rewards you for it. This is a great testimony for how much God truly loves to bless his children. He looks for any excuse to reward him. As we conclude, we've just, we preached on how the minister is required to be faithful, the man's judgment is meaningless, and that God will be the one to judge. And there may be some here who feel like they're past the point of ever receiving this commendation from God. There may be some here who are saying, I, you don't have no idea how unfaithful I've been. You have no idea the amount of sins I've committed. The thing I love about David in Scripture is every time he sinned, it was a really big sin that sometimes cost thousands of lives. But when you read about him in Chronicles, you never see Bathsheba brought up. 
In fact, a lot of times when you see a wicked king introduced, Scripture goes out of its way to say, this person was wicked and did not walk in the ways of David. Despite all those failures, that book still depicts David as someone who is pleasing to God. In the 1500s, there was a man named Thomas Kramer, who was a martyr. And when Bloody Mary came to war, she gave him and his two friends a chance to save their lives and not be burned at the stake. And all they had to do was sign a recantation of their faith. And so all three of them rejected. And so Bloody Mary tied Thomas Kramer's two friends to a post and burnt them alive and forced him to watch. After seeing his friends murdered, out of fear he caved in and he signed this recantation letter. And so a few days have went by and Bloody Mary wanted him to do a public reading of this letter. And so at this point he had been so convicted he had repented. And when, when he was brought on stage to read this letter... Instead, he recanted this recantation he signed, and he proclaimed Christ in front of everyone. And furious, Bloody Mary tied him to a stake and lit it on fire. And as it, the, the flames bursted up, he sticks his, the hand that he signed that document into the flame and just kept crying out, thy unworthy hand, thy unworthy hand. And he died a glorious death. And one person... Who was, who was explaining that story to me, made a good point that that's a perfect example that's not how you start that matters, it's how you end. If you have failed in your stewardship and you have just been unfaithful, don't wallow in that. Don't waste the, the opportunities God has given you to steward in the future. Repent, <laughs> cast it upon Christ, and then start doing what you know Christ wants you to. Let me close by giving three quick applications on how you can end well with your stewardship. The first application is pray for God to make you into a faithful steward. Don't rely on the flesh. Pray. Ask God to make you and mold you into someone who could give a good account. And don't just make this a one-time prayer. Make this a consistent prayer all throughout your walk. The, The thing is, If you ask anything according to God's will, he is never going to refuse it. This is a prayer he loves to answer. Second application is saturate yourself in Scripture. Get to a point where if they cut you, you bleed Scripture. If you want to steward God's word well, you're going to have to know it well. If you struggle with reading, just read one chapter a day and just start from there. Just start small. And the third and final application is be faithful with your stewardship in whatever current situation you're in, no matter how small. If you have a family, start with just lean family worship. Get your family together, read scripture, give a thought, and just start there. If you have an unsaved coworker, just start by giving them the gospel. Just start out small and build that habit, and you will get to a point where God is pleased with your stewardship. Let's close in prayer. Father, we praise you that it's not the strong and wise you choose to use. It's not the strong and wise that you choose to steward your message, the gospel, Christ, but it's weak and, as we learned this morning, insignificant creatures. And Father, I pray for all of us 
that you don't let any of us die until we can live a life where we can say, with a clear conscience, I stewarded your word well. Mold us all into people who are bold, who are wise, who are humble, and people who love our brothers and sisters in the world. And give us the ability to faithfully proclaim the gospel no matter what it costs. We pray this in your son's name. Amen.